you were to answer the question, what is faith, how would you respond? How, how would you define faith? How would you describe faith to the world around you? Uh, John read a verse from Hebrews chapter, chapter 5 that describes perfect faith, the, the perfect faith of Jesus in responding to his Father, not my will, but your will be done. But let me just read this again for a moment and draw attention to what faith looks like and how faith leads to hard things. Notice, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Okay. So Jesus prays. Jesus, the Son of God, prays to the Father. He's praying with perfect faith. He's praying with tears to the only one who can save him from death. And it says that the Father heard him. Now, <clears throat> what we would normally think is when God hears our prayers especially if they're offered in perfect faith, then it means that we're going to be rescued. But Jesus was not rescued from death. He was preserved through death. He accomplished what only death could accomplish, redemption for the world. So, so make no mistake, and, and here's... Here's the reason why I bring this up this morning is because we're, we're coming down from the mountain. This is, this is the mountain experience that, uh, that, that Jesus had the last couple of weeks as we've been looking through the Sermon on the Mount. And, and now he comes into Capernaum and he's talking about true faith. We, we talked about discipleship last week and now we're learning about lessons on faith this week. And, and I want you to recognize what faith looks like. Faith is a settledness. It's a confidence in a sovereign God who loves his people and has a perfect plan for them, regardless of the trials and tribulations and sufferings and persecutions that you might go through, recognizing that God has a purpose for them and not always delivering you from them, but in helping to rescue you, preserve you, strengthen you through them. And faith will lead you through that journey, just like it led Jesus through that journey. Where our world would try to convince you that faith is a sham. It would try to convince you that faith is just a fairy tale, that faith is fiction, as it were. It's baseless. It's not grounded in anything substantial. It, it has no true merit. There aren't really any, any proofs in this in this world, especially as it relates to the, the Scripture, there aren't any real hard evidence to prove that the Bible is in fact what it claims to be. And they would call your attention to science. They would say that, that science is in competition in some way with the truth claims of the Bible. We see yard signs all the time as, as uh, my family is walking together um, in our neighborhood uh, sign after sign that calls attention to science is real. Of course, science is not a contradiction to the Bible. But science can only be understood in light of the Scripture. It can only be 
understood and, and, and recognized as the, the Bible is the authority, the preeminent authority of life and helps understand and filter the truth claims of science and help us understand what is really real. So science can't explain the creation. It can't explain a worldwide flood. It certainly can't explain the miracles of God in preserving his people. The, the, the manna in the 40 years of wilderness wa uh, wanderings, the, the water from the rock, the preservation of God over nations and kingdoms that seem incomprehensible to the secular mind. And it certainly can't explain the incarnation. It can't, it can't even begin to comprehend how, how God can, uh, can come in human form, in human flesh. And it also can't explain the resurrection. But as we come to appreciate the truth claims of the Bible, then we can begin to understand how, how science actually supports the, the truth claims that we see. And that there is truth that can be had, and that the Bible provides truth that is secure, that is, that is confidence, it's dependable, it's trustworthy. And, and that's, by the way, the reason why the Gospels were written. As John says in John chapter 20, verse 31, we, we went through this for, for several years. Um, it says, these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. There is evidence. There is dependability as we evaluate the life of Christ and see the way that he measured up to all of the Old Testament predictions. He was, in fact, the one he claimed to be. In Luke comes the same conclusion and, and builds the same case in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, where he says, Inasmuch as many as un have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. By the way, he's referring to the fact that, that Jesus accomplished the very things that we expected him to accomplish, the things that the prophets had foretold. And, and how does science explain that? Verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also to write an orderly account to you that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. As we come to evaluate and understand the scripture, as we read the truth claims of the word of God, the power of the word is meant to lead us to faith. We're going to find some neat examples in our passage this morning of the unexpected, the unexpected responses of faith from people who had no business believing. And as we evaluate their life in Luke chapter 7, we begin to see that, that, that while we may have never got to meet Jesus in person, while we have never heard his words directly, while we have never experienced the miracles, while, while we've never been a, a witness of, of, of his direct ministry of power, we are not as, at a disadvantage. You are not at a disadvantage this morning because the same power of the word of God and the same power of the Holy Spirit is the same power that you and I need to lead us to genuine saving faith today. You are not at a disadvantage. 
and the people you love who don't know Christ are not at a, at a disadvantage. As you bring the word of God to them, as you invite the spirit of God to, to interact and to help and to lead them to himself, faith, faith can be present. It can be a present reality as God works in their heart to draw them to salvation. Look with me at, at Luke chapter 7. First, I want to draw your attention to this remarkable faith of this centurion. <laughs> it's remarkable in so many ways, but, 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 but Jesus draws attention to the centurion, and it says in verse 9 that he was amazed. He was amazed at the faith of this centurion. It's, it should be very encouraging to us. As Jesus commends this centurion, the, the only person in the entire New Testament who Jesus is amazed by in a positive way. And he's amazed because of faith. Unexpected, remarkable faith. Notice, after he had finished, Jesus... He's finished speaking, finished delivering this Sermon on the Mount. Now he's, he's coming down. He's finished all of these sayings in the hearing of the people. He enters Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. Jesus has just talked about true discipleship. We saw that over the last couple of weeks. And now Jesus is going to give some, some life lessons on faith as he calls attention to the faith of a centurion, the faith of a widow, and as he helps to restore and renew and encourage the faith of John the Baptist. Here he is in Capernaum. We've already seen uh, this town a couple of times. Uh, this is where Jesus' home base of ministry was. This is where Peter's home was, and so they would often converge here in Capernaum. This was kind of the, the, the center of Jesus' Galilean ministry. In Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 37, we find that many miracles took place, uh, and the people here observed the mighty works of God and the mighty messages, mighty words of God to them here in Capernaum. In John chapter 4, we find that this is where the second miracle took place in the region of Galilee. And, and, and in that instance, there was an official that came from Capernaum to uh, 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 Cana of Galilee and asked for a very similar thing to happen for him. In that case, that, that official had a son who was at the point of death and asked that Jesus would would send word and heal him. And, and Jesus says, go, your, sin, your son will, will live. He goes and believes, returns to Capernaum, and finds his son alive just as Jesus had said. Perhaps the, the, the preceding miracle of Jesus in that instance was, was, the, what was the reason why in our passage this morning this centurion was able to have faith. This, this other official in some Roman capacity uh, up here in the same city of Capernaum may have had a conversation with this centurion and, and that was the spark of faith. And, and by the way, I, 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 I say that because I, I want you to realize that, that, that God will use the situations that you're in. He will use the, the faith that you have 
in, in, in speaking about the mighty works of God to the people around you to often be the seed by which new faith and the catalyst by which new faith will happen in the lives of people around you. And that's what we find here. We find this, this faith that is present in the life of the centurion. But, but Christ would ultimately condemn Capernaum. The, the faith that was present in a few and, and the faith that was secondary or superficial in many would ultimately be condemned in, in just a couple of chapters from now in Luke chapter 10 in the correlating story in Matthew chapter 11 where Jesus condemns Capernaum for their deficiency of faith. Notice in Matthew chapter 11, 21, it says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. It stands for us as a, as a, as a banner waving to caution us to make sure that our faith is true, our faith is anchored, our faith is fixed in the person of Christ. And, and not just fickle, and not just coming along for the ride, but, 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 but truly engaged in the truth claims of the scripture. The faith of this centurion was genuine, was real. And we see the reflections of that faith in a couple of ways. First, it was marked with humility. We see that here in verse two. Uh, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. The, the, the beginnings of humility, the, the beginnings of the, the, the work of God, the, the hints of the preceding faith that he had is showing up even in this verse. The, the empathy that he has for this valued servant. Remember, thinking back last week, thinking about, back about true discipleship, that, that those who are people of mercy will reflect the Father who is a Father of mercy. This centurion, in the work of God in his life, is demonstrating empathy, mercy, compassion as a reflection and as an evidence of true faith that's happening inside. He had a servant who was sick, and Matthew helps us understand it wasn't just any other sickness, it was a sickness unto death, and it was the kind of sickness that led this, this servant paralyzed, and it says, dreadfully tormented. We understand that he is clearly not Jewish. As you look ahead in verse 5, you, you see the, the commendation of the elders of this city in commending this centurion, saying saying, he loves our nation, meaning he wasn't part of the nation, and he built us a synagogue. In verse 9, where Jesus commends this, this centurion's faith, he says, I have not found faith, such faith, in Israel. So this centurion was a Gentile. This centurion was an outsider, which is another encouragement to us as outsiders, as those removed essentially from the from the the special and, and present experiences there in the first century. 
even for those who are removed, even those who are at a supposed disadvantage can be welcomed in by faith through the power of God. A centurion is a Roman army official. He is overseeing a hundred men, and, and when six of these centurions and their companies come together, they create what is, what is called a tribune. He was serving in direct Roman military capacity, but, but, but probably here in Capernaum, there, there wasn't an official outpost here, but but he is doing some business and maybe passing through, perhaps helping with Herod Antipas, who is also present in this city, in this region. But immediately we're confronted by a problem. We're confronted by a problem because this centurion was not a Jew, which means from a first century Jewish perspective, he was disqualified from enjoying and experiencing all the benefits of being a part of the covenant community. He was a Gentile. And as Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 will say, he was alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. He was a stranger from the covenant of promise. He had no hope because he was out without Christ in the world. That was the, the, the human condition that, that God needed to, to pierce through to call this Gentile to himself. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus is using this centurion, and God is using this centurion to help those living in the first century recognize that, that those who are considered children of God, those who are sons of the Most High, as we saw last week, aren't sons by the Most High because of heritage. They're sons by the Most High because of faith. Faith that God would work in the heart of even this Gentile centurion. Uh, this Gentile centurion who was working for the oppressor, the Roman Empire, the aggressor, who was standing in the way of the covenant promises to Israel, and yet God's mercy extended to him as well. Jesus is clear throughout the New Testament about his target audience, and, and he say, it says, he says that he has come only for the lost sheep of Israel, and yet here we find a reflection of the Abrahamic promise who in you all the nations shall be blessed. And here is this Gentile standing as an example, an object lesson of faith preceding childhood or sonship of the Most High. In spite of the seeming obstacles this man may have had, it's clear that he made a reputation for himself in Capernaum. We find in verses 3 to 5, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and to heal his servant. We, we begin to see the humility of this centurion by, by asking elders to come and, and to carry out this request to Jesus because he as a centurion, as a Gentile, did not consider himself worthy to address Jesus in person. So he sends this contingency of elders asking Christ to come and to heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with Christ, pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him for he loves our nation and he is the one who built our synagogue. Please notice the built-in self-righteous perspective of, the, of this, these Jewish elders. 
that, that in their system, they believed that there was a merit that was associated with working, conformity, uh, making their life um, conform to the standard of the Mosaic Covenant. And, and when that happened, certain expectations were, were imposed upon God. Certain entitlements were given. And so in their approach to Christ, they believe that because of this centurion's worthiness, because of the way that he has helped the nation of Israel, that he deserves Jesus to act. But whatever worthiness these elders believed that Jesus possessed, notice the centurion's response. We find that in verse 6 and 7. When Jesus went with them, Jesus responds. He, he's willing to, to do this act. He's willing to heal this servant of the centurion. And Jesus goes with these elders. When he was not far from the house, it says the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. This word, worthy, is the word that means to be enough, to be sufficient, to be adequate. And this is, the, this is the, a necessary element, an essential element of true saving faith is to recognize personal unworthiness, recognizing personal inadequacy, recognizing what we called several weeks ago spiritual bankruptcy. And here it is. It shows up in the heart and life of this centurion who, who recognizes his unworthiness and comes to appreciate and respond appropriately to the authority and superiority of Christ. So he, in humility, recognizes his unworthiness and in recognizing who Jesus is, calls attention to his authority. We're going to see that next. The centurion recognized that to invite Jesus into his home would essentially be subjecting Christ to defilement because to come into a Gentile home would be to subject yourself to defilement. And here we are, again, the centurion, in humility, in a posture of wanting to serve Christ, recognizes Christ's authority and asks him just to send the word. Notice verses 7 and 8. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and my servants do this, and he does it. Now, when I read this many, many years ago in, in studying this passage, I, I, I thought initially that, that this centurion had a little chip on his shoulder that he was responding out of arrogance and pride. Like, I'm a person of authority, so don't come to my house because I don't want a power struggle. <laughs> no, that's exactly the opposite of what is happening here. Uh, this centurion, in recognizing the authority that has been vested in him and the response of the people who are under his charge in sending them as representatives of himself, that when he tells them to go, they do exactly the word that he's, he's telling them to do, that Jesus, because he is also one who possesses authority, can do the exact same thing. This was extraordinary, remarkable faith the kind of faith that set him apart. 
centurion understood authority. He knew Christ could exercise that authority wherever he was, at a distance even. Just send the word, and it will be done, just as you have said. In verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well, because Jesus possessed the authority that the centurion believed he had. He knew it. Notice there is no touch required. There's no need for Jesus' physical presence. Just send the word and it will be done. And so this centurion becomes a model for faith and, and essentially a slap in the face for those who should have known better in Israel. Those who had all the advantages in Israel, the, the temple uh, being, um, having their heritage go all the way back to, to Abraham and to Moses and to David and all the, the lineage and all of the, the benefits of favor of God on them as a people. And yet it's a Gentile who stands as an example of faith. This genuine example comes from the least expected person. It leads us to the question, what is the quality of your faith this morning? Is the quality of your faith one that is, is rooted in humility? Where you've come to a place of recognizing your true spiritual bankruptcy before a holy God. And in recognizing your own spiritual bankruptcy, you, you've come to a place, too, of realizing that sufficiency only comes outside of you, comes from God to you, and that God is able to accomplish his word in a way that demonstrates not only his power, but his kindness to you, in trusting the word of God that even comes and helps you in the midst of hard things, Submitting yourself, as Jesus did, to the will of the Father in the presence and even in the, in the experience of pain and suffering. Next, we find in verses 11 to 17, we find responsive faith, responsive faith of a widow and this crowd in the village of Nain. Notice, soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples in a great crowd went with him. And in this, in this passage and in this narrative, we're going to see that, that faith will respond because it's initiated by a work of Christ. That Christ is the one who initiates faith in this widow's heart and life and also those who, who are present in the city of Nain or the village of Nain. Capernaum, and Nain were ultimately a part of the condemnation that Jesus would give in Matthew chapter 11 and Luke chapter 10. But, but Jesus makes his way to this town, and he makes this, his way to this town by design. It's about 27 miles from Capernaum to this little village, uh, just past Nazareth, about six miles past Nazareth. And this entire crowd may have actually passed through Nazareth in order to get to this little village. There's no mention of the village of Nain before this passage, and there's no mention of this little village of Nain after. But Jesus intended to go to this place, and he intended to go to this place for this specific reason, to encounter this widow who was in need. 
to bring them an example of a powerful, working God who can raise people from the dead. And Jesus, here he is, and we find in verse 12, two crowds begin to converge. As he drew near to the gate of this town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. This massive crowd that followed Jesus a day to a, a day and a half's journey. And here they are converging at just the right moment. A massive crowd that represented Christ and life and this other crowd that represented death in mourning. And here they converge and we find that the power of God through Christ was going to lead to life and victory for this mother and for this young man. Luke draws attention to the fact that, she, that, uh, that he is the only son of his mother, which would have drawn attention to the urgency of the situation. Uh, this widow who had lost any economic hope in a husband and any economic hope in a son who would carry, off or carry out her legacy and help provide for the family was now gone. And now this great assembly of people in mourning for this woman has gathered Verse 13, we find the compassion of Christ. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier and the bearer stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up, began to speak and Jesus gave to him to his mother. Jesus has compassion. Jesus shows initiative. Jesus comes to this little village. Jesus was not invited. Jesus comes up to this procession. He is the one who lays his hands on the bier. He is the one who speaks, rise from the dead. He is the one who initiates this entire event. And it is Jesus' life that raises this little boy to life. And because of the work of God in this place, there is a response of faith. Faith did not precede this event. Jesus acted independently. Jesus acted underneath the, the power of the Spirit in leading him to this place at just the right time so that faith could happen. Notice the result, this five-fold response of the crowd and the widow to the work of Christ in this moment. Fear seized them all in verse 16. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And the report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This fivefold response, first of fear, there is a healthy respect, there is a healthy acknowledgement of the, of the presence of a great individual in their midst. That when those people who have true, genuine faith come to terms with who Jesus is. They have an experience similar to what Peter did on the boat. Remember where they're casting out the nets. They haul in this, this great haul of, of fish and Peter says, depart from me, get away from me. I'm an unworthy man. There's a sense of unworthiness in the presence of a holy God. And fear seizes them all. 
but it doesn't leave them paralyzed. It leads them to worship. They fear, but they also glorify God in worship, in recognizing that something great has happened. There is confession, confession and acknowledgement of a, of a great prophet who's been a, among them, and an affirmation that this is a hand of God in this moment. God has visited his people. And finally, there is witness. This report about him spread through the whole of Judea in all the surrounding country. So you see, true faith will lead to those responses. It will lead to fear. It will lead to worship. It will lead to confession, acknowledgement, and witness. Does your life represent the kind of response of, initi- of an initiating God who has initiated love for you? That we love him because he first loved us. He took the first step. He initiated love. Is our response reflective of what we see of this widow of name? In verses 18 to 28, we find a renewed faith of John the Baptist. And what an encouragement this is. This is the John the Baptist who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the John the Baptist who was the forerunner to the ministry of Christ. This was the John the Baptist who was filled with the Holy Spirit at the point uh, while he was in his mother's womb. This John the Baptist is the one by which we read these words in verse 18. The disciples of John respond, are reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you. Are you the one who has come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. If you've ever had a crisis of faith, if there's ever been a moment in your life where you have wondered, is the Bible really true? If you've ever come to the place of, of questioning your own salvation, I want you to, to take encouragement from this that, that John the Baptist, from whom we, we see in just a few verses, Jesus will say, uh, of anyone who is born of woman, no one is greater than John the Baptist, but it's this one, John the Baptist, who's having a crisis of faith. And what Jesus will do to help him overcome this crisis of faith is what every one of us must do in order for us to come to terms with truth and anchor our hearts in what is really dependable. Notice Jesus' response to this crowd in verse 28, excuse me, verse 22. And he answers them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What does Jesus do? You know, sometimes it might trouble us that Jesus doesn't answer him directly. Why didn't Jesus just say, yeah, I'm the guy. I'm the one. I'm the Messiah, of course. It's because Jesus was staking his 
truth claims on that which was secure. He wanted John to call attention to what he believed, what John believed to be the scripture, what to be true, and so he points John back to what he knows to be true so that in looking at the scripture, which he knows to be true, he can evaluate Jesus' life and say, yes, indeed, Jesus is the one he claims to be. The facts are there. The evidence has been laid out. And, and Jesus is demonstrating the power of God to do exactly what the Bible says he will do. He's pointing back, if you remember, to the mission statement in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. But what is missing? What is missing is that third statement where it says, to set at liberty those who are captive because Jesus didn't intend to release John the Baptist. But the indication is that in responding and evaluating the word of God, that when the disciples went back and reported to John the Baptist, that it encouraged his heart, it restored him in faith, it renewed his confidence in God because he was tethered to the scripture. He was anchored in that which was unshakable, that which was sure and true. And finally, we come to the faith-rejecting hearts of the Pharisees and lawyers in verses 29 to 35. With all of this in the forefront, in the foreground, in all of the work of Christ in accomplishing the impossible, the power of the Spirit, the power of the Word coming to bear, resurrection to life, that only God can do. And yet here are the Pharisees witnessing all that has gone before them, and yet they still are fixed and bent towards rejection. Notice, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. They set their hearts, bent their hearts, fixed their hearts on rejecting Christ, rejecting faith. And so it didn't matter how the gospel was presented. It didn't matter how the good news was given. It came in, in two different ways, and, and that's what Jesus begins to describe as he's confronting this group of Pharisees and lawyers. He says in verse 31, "'To what then shall I compare this people?' of this generation. And what are they like? Well, they're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. What's going on here is the, the willing heart of God to draw sinners to himself. And so he sent John the Baptist as one who comes fasting, essentially playing the dirge. But no one wanted to participate. No one wanted to, to, to enjoy the benefits of the, the kingdom message that John the Baptist brought. They, they wanted nothing to do with that, and they, and they said that, that he had a demon. And yet Jesus comes feasting, as it were. He comes playing the flute, as it were. He comes 
eating, eating good things, eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton. He mixes it up with sinners and tax collectors. This happened because their heart was bent on disbelief, on rejecting the Savior. Their heart was fixed on faithlessness and rejecting the faith that was present. Salvation, we see as a result of this, is a work of God. As God initiates faith and gives the gift of faith that we can enjoy, and we recognize that dead hearts are only raised through divine power. And so this morning, you're not at a disadvantage. And while the world seeks to draw your attention away from the truth claims of Scripture, tries to to help you think that it is in conflict with their truth claims and with, with science in particular, you recognize that as you anchor your hearts in faith in the Bible and as you rest in the power of the Spirit, you can enjoy the benefits of faith that will stand the test of time and will lead you to the kinds of responses that we saw in this passage. I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus in Nazareth, while he is presenting his mission statement, initially those in Nazareth said they marveled at his gracious words. And then remember, Jesus, he, he has two little stories for them. One about a Gentile official who is healed of leprosy, and one about a widow whose son was raised to life. And then what happened? They rejected him. And that's exactly what we see in our passage today. We see a Gentile official who God meets and helps by rescuing and saving and healing his servant. And then a widow whose son is raised to life. And then the rejecting hearts of the Pharisees. May we not be like them. May our hearts be like the centurion, humble, receptive, teachable, compliant, obedient, and responsive like the people in Nain who fear God and worship God, who acknowledge that God is among us and who seek to make the testimony of God known to the world around them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for some lessons on faith. And God, as we evaluate our lives, we recognize that so often we are out of step. Not where we want to be, but thank you for the evidence of your work around us and even in us. May we be catalysts of faith to a watching world wherever we are. We praise you for your work among us and we ask that you would help to bolster faith in our own hearts so that we can exemplify the faith of God to a watching world and, and, and usher them and welcome them to enjoy the same benefits that we enjoy because of your work in our life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. God bless you this week.